2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Welcome back to the Long Form Podcast 2020. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a uh, sponsor. It's making the podcast uh, possible this year. It's made the podcast possible previous years, basically every year. It's Squarespace. And I think you should turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace, Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. I know you have a New Year's resolution about your passion project. One thing you should resolve to do is put it on the internet. Whether you're showcasing your work, selling products of any kind, with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. If you do get stuck, you won't. But if you do, Squarespace has 24-7 award-winning customer support. So head to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey, thank you, Squarespace. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, welcome to 2020. Yeah, happy new year, everyone. It's great to see you guys. It's great to be back with you. It's another year. We're back at it. We're going to keep making the podcast. Who knew? <laughs> I thought maybe 2019, that was it. Year year eight. We're entering year eight. Who is on this podcast kicking off year eight? Uh, kicking off year eight is a conversation I had at the very, very end of 2019 uh, in a hotel room in Los Angeles. It was late at night, you guys. I'd had a long day, and I sat down and uh, drank a couple beers and talked to Cord Jefferson, hey. who's been on the show before. When Cord came on the show uh, the first time, it was uh, it was 2014, and he was the West Coast editor of Gawker. And shortly thereafter, he left Gawker and uh, made a go of it as a TV writer. And uh, totally switched careers. And so we talked about like what that switch has been like. And then also this incredible run he has been on running for TV. So he wrote for Larry Wilmore's show and then wrote on Masters of None and then The Good Place and then Succession. And then he just wrote uh, an episode of Watchmen and was in the writer's room for all of that. So he's had this kind of 
incredible couple of years writing in Hollywood. And we talked a lot about both making that transition and how the two types of writing compare and the careers and also uh, the money. There's one other note I should uh, I should say about this interview, which is that I actually talked to him in October and we lost the interview. I thought you weren't going to mention that, Max. Well, I can't. I'm too guilty not to mention it. I feel too terrible about the whole thing. I'm an audio professional. <laughs> and uh, and I just I lost the interview. It was eaten by the computer. I have a funny anecdote about this lost interview, which uh, in which I air that I both uh, air Max's embarrassing laundry and have no filter. I was in line at the dumpling place read right by uh, the pineapple offices there. And I ran into previous long form podcast uh, guest. PJ from Reply All, and he said, "You know who you should uh, have on the podcast, uh, Cord Jefferson." I said, "It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. Max just deleted an episode with Cord Jefferson." <laughs> In my defense, I didn't delete it. It was eaten. It was eaten for other matters. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Cord was a mensch. He came back, talked to me again, and uh, and it's a good one. If you are thinking about switching careers like Cord Jefferson did. You need a newsletter so people can uh, follow you from point A to point B. Do it with MailChimp. They make it easy. It's uh, it's not too late to start one in 2018, uh, 2020 now. It's not too late to start your <laughs> newsletter. Did you just go with 2018? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to MailChimp. They make this show possible. Aaron, <laughs> fully two years back. And now here's Max in 2020 with Cord Jefferson. Hey, Cord. Hello, Max. Hello uh, again. Again, yes. (laughs) Again, yes. (laughs) You and I did an interview uh, recently. Yeah, in October, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I'm an audio professional. I recorded the interview. And then uh, somehow the interview was lost. It was corrupted. <laughs> it was stolen by the internet. Uh, I'm sorry about that. That's fine. I feel great shame. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. I. This just gives us another opportunity to hang out. And 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 what glorious uh, surroundings we're in. We were like uh, recording in a hotel room in Los well, Angeles. I will say, to be fair, we're in the beautiful Sunset Tower Hotel, one of my favorite places in Los Angeles. It's so I'm nice, happy to be here. It's a nice hotel. Yeah. We got a we're like got a desk covered with a towel. Yeah. Uh, but I appreciate you coming back and doing this, man. Thank you for having me. So you and I talked years ago, and at the time you were the West Coast editor of Gawker. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wanted to have you back was shortly after you and I talked, you left Gawker. And I've been watching from afar as this whole other career happens, and I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't really, I don't really know how what it works. What don't you understand? Well, basically, all of it. <laughs> I don't understand anything about TV writing, and I don't understand how you make that transition. I don't understand what's similar and what's different. So that's what I'm, I'm hoping we can talk about. But okay. I was wondering if you could start with like how that first move happened. Like you were, journalism was working for you. Yeah. This was my experience. Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I barely understand it at this point. So, so that's the caveat, but I really enjoyed my job. I really liked working at Gawker and I had been talking with the guy who's now my manager because his name is Jermaine Johnson. And he emailed me in July of 2013 after this 
I did this satire piece about the culture of white violence. Yeah. Amongst like white teenagers. And I went on Chris Hayes and did like a, a spoof of it on air on the Chris Hayes show. And it got a lot of attention. And one of the people who noticed it was Jermaine Johnson who reached out to me. I feel like we should just very briefly let yeah. people listen to a clip of that. Okay. Play a clip okay, of it. cool. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. It's funny. You know, there, there are people that are going to tell you that it's just a few bad apples. If you look at the video, you can't say this whole group, uh, you know, this has nothing to do with white people. It's just a few bad apples. What do you say to that? Uh, to that, I say that if, if, if that's your actual belief, then you're living with your head in the sand. Um, I used to live in New York City and would uh, occasionally go to Hoboken, New Jersey, St. Patrick's Day Parade. Um, and there were so many young white men there vomiting in the streets, urinating in the streets, getting in fistfights in the streets. Um, it, was, it was a I've sight seen to it. be seen. I've seen, it was, my, I've seen it myself. There's, there's college dorms you can go to, every other room. Yeah, and the, and there's the, a and bong. <laughs> there are people talking about how much, um, how much they enjoy But Jermaine reached saw it and reached out and said, have you ever thought about writing for television? I think you might be good at it. I really like this piece of yours. And he read some other stuff that I'd written. And I had sort of toyed with the idea of writing for TV and film, but I, you know, if you are not in the world, as you said, it's very difficult. It seems incredibly insular and it seems like there's a lot of barriers to, to getting into it. Um, I didn't know anybody who worked in that field. Had had that been an ambition of yours? Is that like part of why you left New York and moved to LA? No. It, that I mean, for me, I always say that like, you know, there's more, but like my literary like heroes are like James Baldwin and Joan Didion just in that, you know, they took the idea of writer and and looked at it as a very on very broad terms. And so they would write a novel and then they would go write a piece of journalism and then John Diddy might go write a screenplay. Yeah, and I then, think the um, end of that first interview we did, you were yeah. talking about that and you were also like Graydon Carter, owning restaurants. Yeah. That it, shit seems yeah, cool. Exactly, exactly. And so like the this idea that like you have a toolbox and you can do a lot of things with that toolbox instead of just this one thing was always attractive to me. And so mm -hmm. I, while I was like, I'm a blogger at Gawker right now, I sort of did have ambition to do other stuff and, and TV was one of them. I just had no idea how to do it. So this guy writes you an email and is like, you were funny on Chris Hayes. I've read some other stuff. I think maybe you could do this. Yeah. And then what happens? So we went, met up for coffee and then we decided that I should write a spec script. So I just went off and very, very slowly wrote this script, this drama pilot called Forgive Me Father that I, if I were to go back and read it now, I think I would really hate it. Um, I can't, I can't bring myself to read like the old scripts that I've written because I hate them so much. But it's, and it took me a long time. That he, we met in July. I think I sent him the first draft of it in January of 2014. And he had it for a few days. And on like Friday of that week, I got an email from this guy, Michael Malley, who's a writer and actor. He was, he's the host of Guts, if you remember that show, Guts. Sure. Yeah. So he's among many other like great things. He was, that was like, the I think, my first introduction to him. Um, and he asked, he was doing the show called Survivor's Remorse and asked if I would come be a writer on that show. And I quickly called Jermaine and I was like, who did you show that script to? Like, I'm really not proud of it. I think it's kind of bad. Why are you sending it out to people? And Jermaine was like, I didn't show it to anybody. This guy must have just found you. And so I asked Jermaine if he thought that I should take the job. And he said that nobody, he was like, nobody cold calls you to write for a TV show. Like, that doesn't happen. So he was like, I highly recommend you take that job. <laughs> but was it like a full-time gig? Well, yeah, it was. I mean, it was a full-time gig as far as like it was the first season of the show. And mm -hmm. so, but it was a limited order. It was six episodes, six half-hour episodes. The job was going to be 13 weeks. And then there was no guarantee of a second season after that. So it was, 
I was nervous to make the leap just because I really liked my job at Gawker. I felt like I was good at it. I felt like I had, you know, I wasn't famous by any means, but I had, I had established people would come to me to ask me to write things for them. I didn't have to like cold email people and send out pitches really a lot. And so, yeah, you were established. And I assume also like making like decent money. I was making the most money I'd ever made in journalism and I was making more money than I was, than I would be making as a TV writer because I wasn't, I wasn't allowed in the guild at that point. Yeah. So I was making what was called the neophyte rate. And so my weekly pay was actually less than what I was making. <laughs> That's what at they Gawker. call it, the neophyte yeah. rate. Yeah. Just, just in case you weren't sure where you are <laughs> yeah, on the just, uh, pecking yeah. order. <laughs> yeah. Neophyte. You were like, you were the stump that the totem pole sits on. <laughs> you're not even on the totem pole. Um, so, so your manager is saying like, this doesn't happen. You have to do this. Yeah. Did it feel that way to you? No, because I didn't know anything about television. So I didn't realize what a unique opportunity it was. So I was like, I don't know. I'm still kind of nervous about it. But I sort of waited in my mind and thought that I could go back and do journalism if I wanted to. You know, I stupidly was like, journalism is going to be around forever. Like I could <laughs> I could be a journalist. That's a solid yeah, business yeah, model. Journalism is going to exist forever. Like this isn't going anywhere. So if this TV thing doesn't work out, I could definitely go back to Gawker. Like where's Gawker going to go? Gawker's going to be around. My kids are going to read Gawker. It's an institution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I decided to, you know, take the leap. And if I don't like it, then so be it. But at least I tried. So you take that gig and then like uh, despite the label of neophyte, like, were you good at it? Um, I think I was. That uh, Mike O'Malley and I have since stayed in touch. Mike O'Malley, by the way, is like the menchiest guy in the world. Like, I really do. He and I were just texting because a couple of shows that I have written on in the past year have been getting nominated for awards and stuff. And he texted me and was sort of like congratulating me. And I told him, like, you. I think there's very few – people that you can point to and say like you literally changed my life and he he did he changed my life in a very real way i really liked the i liked the collaboration of it i liked sitting in a room with a bunch of people every day and talking about ideas and and talking about the work and and making jokes with them and talking about characters and i liked collaborating with directors and producers and actors like that was all very fun to me particularly after you know when i worked at gawker I didn't even go into the office. I was the West Coast editor, quote unquote, because I didn't want to move to New York. So they just gave me the title of West Coast editor. <laughs> that just meant that I lived in LA. Right. And so there were days, you know, I lived alone. I talked to people on Campfire, the pre-Slack era, but I never went to the office. There were entire days that I would realize that I hadn't spoken to a single person all day. You know, it was a very sort of solitary existence in a way that I liked at, at, for a time. You know, I'm kind of an introverted guy sometimes, but... I also realized that like, oh, being in a room with a lot of people that I think are smart and funny is also very fun and I want to try that out a little bit more. And you were also like living the like uh, grind of the internet. Yeah. Oh, like, God. You yeah. were just online all day, every day. Yeah. Oh, w wake up at like 6.30 and like check the internet immediately and then stay on the internet until, you know, I was done with my day at like 6.30. So like good 12 to 13 hours. And how did it feel to uh, like leave that behind like there's this whole uh conversation minute to minute conversation that's happening all day every day which you were pretty plugged into for whatever it was you know several years yeah uh and then you should start going to this writer's room yeah what was that like it was hard at first I, uh, but i think that it was nice for me 
because I think that I didn't realize how much the internet had infected my brain and how addicted I was to it. I don't think there's a better word for it than addiction and how big a part of my life it had become and one that I didn't, I wasn't aware of how much it had overtaken my existence. And to go into that room was interesting because like the show was about sports. It was called Survivor's Remorse. It was based loosely on LeBron James's life. And I remember like my first or second week there, we were talking about the Manti Teo story. And I said, um, yeah, like the place that I used to work, Deadspin broke that story. And everybody in the room went, what's Deadspin? Everybody. I think there were seven or eight other writers in there. Not a single one of them knew what Deadspin was. And it was like... I'm living in a bubble. <laughs> I know. It was, it was crazy. And they, these were all people who like were really into sports. And I just realized like, oh, there's an entire huge swath of the United States that has no idea like what what is going on with like these things that were like so important to me. Like it reminded me of, there's this great moment. I think of it like often <laughs> actually when I think about the internet where there's, I was home in Tucson, I'm from Tucson, Arizona. And one of my best friends in the world is this guy, Chris, and he owns a hair salon in Tucson. His existence like couldn't be like more different from mine, like his, what he does for a living. And so I was home one time and we were chatting and we, we went out for dinner one day after work and I was like so focused on this thing that had happened that day on Twitter. I can't even remember what it was, of course, but it was like it had taken like I had been stewing about it all day and I was over, I was telling him about it and I, I went on for like much longer than I probably should have, you know, like pro probably five or six minutes. And I finally got done telling him about it and he like leaned back in his chair and he took a sip of his beer and he thought for a second and then he just goes, who gives a fuck? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, and it was so incredible and it made, it was like the perfect response and it's like such a, like, like a douse of like cold water. They're like, oh yeah, nobody cares about this shit. Like, like this thing that I, like, I was so mad about, I can't remember if I was mad or sad or however I was feeling about it. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, so many people don't – this, like, matters not to anybody except for, like, me and, like, maybe, like, 4,300 other people who, like, have my same brain disease who are, like, focused on this thing. Even 4,300 feels high to me. <laughs> yeah, maybe, right? Yeah. It's like a small, like, elementary school auditorium's worth of people. So going to that writer's room felt sort of freeing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. And it was – yeah, it, I don't want to. I don't want to make it seem like I, my time on the internet was like wasted. I really enjoyed my job at Gawker, and I really enjoyed the friends that I made on the internet and like the the things that I did there. But at the same time, it was like like a breath of fresh air. Like, oh wow, I didn't realize how how much I had let this consume my life until I took a huge step back. And I think it allowed me sort of the opportunity to sort of I think grow as a writer also. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Cord on hold for just a second. Tell you about a sponsor making today's show possible. It's Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, whatever it is that you want to do on an internet website, Squarespace is the tool for you with beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything. With only a few clicks, you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. Uh, I should tell you, 
I have a, a company. I work at a company that's a podcast company, and we needed a website. And uh, would you like to know what tool I use to build it? Squarespace. I use Squarespace. It's super easy. We recently had to change a bunch of things on the website. I'll tell you how long it took. No time. Super easy. That's Squarespace's whole thing. We don't sell anything on the website, but uh, if we wanted to, you can do that too. They got this powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online. And they also have analytics so you can help grow your site in real time. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's nothing to patch, nothing to upgrade. They've got 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace. They empower millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Now it's your turn. Head to squarespace.com longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com longform, offer code longform. Thanks so much to Squarespace for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to uh, that hotel room with me and Court. So you like the collaboration of that writer's room. Did you have a feel for like how you put together a script? Did someone like help you figure that out? Did you just walk in? You're like, I'm a neophyte. Yeah, basically, yeah. The th- I mean, to learn to write a good, good script, I think that you should do the same thing that you do for any writing is just read a ton. So I read a ton of scripts um, of shows that I really loved and sort of tried to understand their tricks and how they told stories and their transitions and everything. So that was part of it. And I just started writing a lot in Final Draft and the learning the technical aspects of it are pretty easy once you get Final Draft. It's pretty simple to pick up. I think that the real thing to learn when you're joining a writer's room is just 90% of a writer's room isn't writing a script. 95% of a writer's room isn't writing a script. 95% of a writer's room is just sitting in a room with every day and sort of like understanding how to contribute, um, when to shut up, what's needed to that moment, how to pitch on a story, how to pitch on a joke, like what you need to make an interesting character, like what you need to make an interesting storyline and, and an interesting character arc and a season arc. Like those things are much more important than actually like learning how to sit down and like put fingers to keys and write a script because so much of the work is just like sitting in a room and having a dialogue with the other writers. Do you have like a, a lane and maybe it changes show to show. And I definitely want to talk about the other shows that you've worked on, but like is the way that a writer's room works that like you sort of fall into a role and you're playing a role in the room. Yeah. I think that, I mean, the idea of a lane, like you said, changes from show to show, but I think the, you know, when I was on the good place, something that people talk about from time to time is like the idea of a story guy and a joke guy. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, you know, some people are like joke machines and joke factories and can really like come up with one-liners and then punchlines very quickly. I am not that kind of person. I That that is not my particular skill set. Um, so I think that in that room, I would probably consider myself and I think most of my colleagues would consider me like a story guy. Um, I think that I'm, I think that I'm good at character and um, plot and, the logic of a story and how to piece together the puzzle of what a season looks like. And I think that I, I mean, I'm not going to poo poo my own skills too much. I, I think that if you give me like a week to go off and write a script, I can write like a funny script and I can put in good jokes. But there is, once it's time to punch up that script and like everybody in the room is like shouting out punchlines and stuff, that is not my particular mm-hmm. ability. But, you know, in the drama rooms that I work in, you don't really have like a punch-up room where you're like trying to punch up jokes. The drama rooms are just much more like everybody's a story person and everybody's a... Some good jokes in succession. 
There are some really good jokes in Succession. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what makes it such a great show is that it's – I think that it's like a great British comedy. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. But okay. All right. So you get this first gig. It's six episodes. Yeah. You end that run and then what happens? Nothing. <laughs> it was seven months of nothing. I thought that – because Jermaine had told me he was like the first job is the hardest to get. And so I was like, oh, well – if that was the hardest I had to work to get the job, then it's like everything's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. But that was not the case. It, I took what – in Hollywood, there's – you do what's called general meetings, which just means that you go to meet executives and speak generally. They're not talking to you about a specific project or anything. Right. It's like there's no job. Yeah. There's no job that's like on the table for you to take that's more just like we're going to meet each other and like feel each other out and see if I like you and you like me. And so I just did that. So I, I call it the couch and water bottle tour where it's just like you go to ABC and they give you a bottle of water and they say like, great, just sit on this couch. And then you go to NBC and then you go to Netflix and then you go to CBS and then you go to HBO and then you go to Fox. And so I was doing like, I guess averaging probably three to four of those a week. And, but for like six or seven months, I was just doing that over and over and over. And it was really demoralizing and really frustrating that was a really frustrating year of my life. My mother had been diagnosed with cancer. So that was stressing me out. My landlords had sold my apartment building. So I was needing to find a new apartment. I was eating into my savings because I was not working. I was I had turned down three full-time journalism jobs. Um, I was taking some freelance stuff to keep me afloat, but it wasn't enough to like counteract the fact that I was like using my savings up slowly. By the way, Michael Malley, the he's a great guy for a lot of reasons, but one of the sweetest things that anybody's ever done for me is that because I was not in the guild yet, I was not able to get – I got what's called a story by credit on one of the episodes. And so normally if you get a story by credit, you get like $5,500 or something. And they didn't give me that because I was so new. And so I had sort of been counting on that money and didn't get it. And one day, like a couple weeks after we wrapped the room – Michael O'Malley invited me over to his house and then he wrote me a personal check for the amount of money that that I was owed for the story by. And like did not have to do that. And it was like just a, a really nice gesture from him in a way that I felt like he is like again, he's he literally changed my life. And so I was like kicking around doing all these general meetings and like I said, the, there was a lot of bad stuff going on. And then to top it all off this one week, there was a heat wave. And it was like, that was the breaking point for me. I was like, I'm moving out of my apartment and it's hot and I'm sweating all the time and I can't get a job and I'm using all this money. And so I wrote this like, I like rushed to my computer one night and wrote this like kind of feverish email to Jermaine, my manager, that essentially just said like, look, man, like you need to tell me if this was all a pipe dream. And if it was all a pipe dream, I am fine with that. I do not begrudge you convincing me to do this. I really enjoyed my show, the show that I worked on. I really enjoyed trying to do this. But, you know, I can't just keep taking these meetings and never getting a job. Like I need to work eventually. And he wrote me back this sort of like very kind, calm, rational email. And he just said like, this is the way of the world. Like, I promise you, like other people have done this, like you are fine. Just give it, please, another month or two. And if you don't, if you're not working after another month or two, we can reassess after that. Mm -hmm. So 
I said, okay, I'll stick it out for a little bit longer. And then a couple weeks after we had that conversation, I went to meet Larry Wilmore on the set of Blackish. He was directing his last episode of Blackish because he had just been hired to go um, host a show called The Nightly Show in New York. And so I was like the first meeting that he took for a writer in LA. I met with him and I met with the showrunner and um, they gave me the job. And I, that was, I think, October of 2014. And I moved to New York in December of 2014 for that job. I want to stay in that like uh, seven month wandering period mm -hmm. for a second. During that time, like, did you regret having left journalism? Were you assuming like, all right, well, if I get to this next month or two months that Jermaine is asking me for and it doesn't work out, I'm going to go back to that? Like, what was going through your mind about journalism at that point? I... I didn't want to go back, not because I didn't like it, but because it would have felt like a failure. I would have felt like I failed. I tried this thing and I couldn't hack it. And so I needed to go back to what I was doing before. And you, you mean, particularly early in your career, like you had really hustled in journalism too and written for lots of different places. And yeah. I feel like you were like a, at least my like understanding of you is that you were like a pretty like entrepreneurial journalist, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like you had to be. How different did the like hustle in those seven months feel from the one that you'd been doing in journalism? I felt scared because I wasn't confident in my abilities as a television writer. And so a couple months into that search, I had written another script that they were sending out now as like a sample, but it wasn't like it was on air. Nothing that I had really, I'd contributed to a lot of the ideas that were on Survivor's Remorse, but I had never written a script myself. And I, it's not like I had like a huge hand in it. And so when I was a journalist, I felt confident in my abilities. I felt like I could talk to people and say like, if I'm pitching you a story, I could say like, I feel confident that I can do this and do it in a way that's going to be satisfactory to both of us. I didn't feel like I could confidently walk in a room and say that to television executives that like if you give me money i'm going to be able to write a good script for you i, didn't I was gonna that. say that god uh, that feels like maybe not the best mindset for these general meetings <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> absolutely and it's like one of the sadder parts about the world i think is that like the more it seems like you need a job the less people want to give you a job does that make sense like yeah. it's like people can sense despair and when they sense despair that like for whatever reason that's like repulsive to people and I think that like I walked into a lot of those movies like smelling of despair and saying and then it felt like I need you to hire me and like I was nervous and sweaty and I was not able to walk in there with my head held high into those meetings because I felt like A, degraded by the fact that I was doing them so much and like unable to get work but B, because I was very sort of unsure of my abilities when it came to television writing. So when did uh – when did you get your confidence? Like how? how oh man, I still don't really have my confidence. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'm better at faking it now in those meetings. But I think that working on the nightly show helped me get my confidence because it was the first show. You get your sea legs really fast on a show like that because you're making an episode of television every day. So you never stop pitching. You never stop writing. You never stop putting jokes on the air. And so once I got there... I almost passed out on my first day of working at the nightly show. I was sitting in the first all staff meeting and I remember 
distinctly sitting there and thinking like, oh, you're going to, like you're seeing spots, you're going to black out and like fall over in front of all these people. <laughs> Why? That's how, because that's how nervous I was. I felt like I was like, you can't screw this up. Like you you need this job. Like if you get fired from this, like it's it's like back to the internet, <laughs> like, like back to the blog mines for you, man. <laughs> like that's, that's truly how I felt. And so, but once you're in there and you're forced to do it and it's like sink or swim, I started getting stuff on the air and I started getting jokes on the air and bits and like I started feeling like I was part of the team and I didn't feel like an outsider. I felt like, oh, because there were other writers there who, and it, for whom it was their first job also. I didn't feel like, you know, when I was working on Survivor's Remorse, I was the first. Everybody else had worked on TV shows before and so I felt very much like a like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but there it felt like I felt like a little bit more like I was on the level with a lot of other people. And then when I actually started getting stuff in the air and, and stuff I was pitching started working, I got some confidence there and, and was able to sort of build up a sense of ability and that like, oh, you can do this. It's no longer seems like a like an impossible dream. This is maybe like a uh, Didion Baldwin question about like the toolkit, but that process of gaining confidence, does that feel the same no matter what the medium is? Yeah, but yeah, you're just learning like different rules, which was... You know, I think that that was a great show for me to to go to immediately after my first show because we all know those shows nowadays. It's like very much in the style of John Oliver or Samantha B, where it's like you pull a headline from the news that day and then you sort of like tell a story and draw the viewer from point A to point Z and like put in jokes along the way. So it wasn't entirely different from like a Gawker blog post because, you know, Gawker did that. I mean, yeah. Gawker would take us something from the headlines and, and make a lot of jokes about it and and throw it up. It was just sort of the rules of how to do that along the way are just a little slightly different in that like, like something that was really a revelation to me that is very obvious maybe to some people, but coming from my background, I didn't know is that like put the punchline at the end of the sentence because people want to laugh. And if you put the punchline in the middle of the sentence and then there's more to come, that stifles the laughter because people have to continue listening to something that's not a punchline. And so I remember working with a writer who had been working on, he is this guy, Tom Ruprecht, who's a really great guy. I think he had written for Letterman for like 15 years before he joined The Nightly Show. And he's the first one who pointed that out to me. We were writing a script together one day and I was like, oh, Oh my God, <laughs> that's so obvious. And yet it's something that I would have never considered had you not like said this to me right now. And so there's just like learning those little tools along the way mm -hmm. as to like how to format this and like what you need to do. And like those were things that were new to me, but you just pay attention and you sort of like follow people's lead and pretty soon like you are doing what they're doing. What was the, uh, what was the money like? Pretty good. I mean, more than I <laughs> more than I was making. Yeah. By then, I was in the guild, and so I can't remember exactly, but it was, you know, was thousands of dollars a week. I mean, the one thing that I do remember was that I think that that show was replayed three times a day, and so our first batch of residual checks were like more than a quarter of my salary at Gawker. Mm -hmm. And that was on top of like my other salary. So residuals are just like basically found money for it. It's like work that you've already done. You've, right. already, you've already written this episode. Just free money. They're just paying you money to replay this episode of television. And we got residuals like quarterly. So I was basically getting more than my entire Gawker salary 
in residual checks. <laughs> Score. Yeah, as like on top of like what I was being paid to write. Had you understood those economics before you had made that switch? No, I knew that television writers made a good amount of money, but it's also like when I had my when I had my other experience, it was like it wouldn't have mattered if I would have made ten times my salary at Gawker. If, if then I have to be out of work for seven months, every, like between every job, right? Yeah. It's like so. I was like, oh, this is this is great, but it didn't feel like that much money because I was like, if I leave the show or the show gets canceled or I lose or I get fired, then it's like I could work, go almost a year again without working again. So I didn't feel like a rich person or anything because I was like, it just felt very unstable still. The whole thing just felt tenuous. Yeah, because, you know, it was a new show. Most TV shows get canceled. And so I was always like, I'm not going to like go throwing around money because it doesn't feel like this feels like it could come to an end pretty quickly. But it was certainly more than I was making, significantly more than I was making as a journalist. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, in some way that's like kind of validating the choice. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I've really shuddered to think that I have allowed money to make any decisions for me. I sort of pride myself on not doing that. So, but I, I would also be lying if I didn't say that the economics of writing for TV are much better than the economics of journalism. And so that was one of the reasons that I eventually decided I did not want to go back to journalism. Yeah. Was that it was, it was just. Well, there's a difference, right? Between like um, doing things for money and uh, I mean, you also seem like someone who like gets pretty nervous about money. So there's like doing things for like security, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely like a person who's nervous about money. I, my, I didn't, I didn't grow up dirt poor or anything, but I certainly grew up in a home where like money was tight sometimes. And I saw my parents stress about that and I think that it certainly has an effect on how I perceive money nowadays. Like I just, I never want that. I never want to like stress about that. And yeah. It was a stress for me for a very long time. Like when I, I asked my parents for loans until I was 29 because, you know, sometimes money was tight when you're a, a writer in New York. Like yeah. it's like, it wasn't like the heady days of like, 1985 when they're giving out million dollar contracts to magazine writers, you know, it was very much like dog eat dog. And so I was like taking what I could get, but sometimes it wasn't enough to cover the rent. And so I would have to ask them for money. And so I, um, yeah, I just got to a point when I was like, I don't, I don't want that anymore. And once I got into TV, it was like, oh, you know, <laughs> if you play, if you play your cards, right, like it seems like there's like a lot of money here that sh that that to be made, right? Yeah, and can provide some security that potentially um, journalism and yeah. But back then, I mean, I guess maybe the writing was on the wall. But when I, when I left to go join TV in 2014, I f it felt like Gawker was stable. It felt yeah. like Gawker was going to be there for a long time, and you know, people were getting good benefits there, and like the salaries were healthy and. Um, there was a 401k plan, like they were giving stock options to people. It just felt like, you know, this was going to be a business model that, that would be successful for a long time. And then 
you know, I just guess I didn't have the forethought to see that. It's a to tough one to like, see coming. But I just, I don't mean, I don't mean just Gawker in general. I just mean like the industry wide. Yeah. I just didn't see the contraction industry wide. Yeah. I think maybe a lot of people did, but I didn't, ha- I didn't see it coming. Oh yeah. I think industry wide people did see that coming, but Hulk Hogan would be a tough thing yeah. to predict. <laughs> so you do this Wilmore gig and like you start feeling like you're getting the rhythm of this thing, but also sucking money away because you don't know what's going to happen next. And then again, like. I'm just trying to like figure out what happened because I was just watching from afar. But my understanding, my sense is that you just like went on an insane run. Like it's been good. Yeah. Good. So I left the nightly show because the nightly show was great and I learned a lot and I made a lot of good friends, but it was also exhausting because you're working all the time. And so I told my representatives, I had an agent by then and I just told her and my manager, like I'm, I'm sort of need to go back to scripted. And so they got me a meeting with Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang for Master of None season two. And so I went to Master of None. And then from Master of None, I went to Good Place. From Good Place, I went to Watchmen. From Watchmen, I went to Succession. And then I went back to Watchmen and then back to Good Place. And now I'm on a new show called Station Eleven. It's a pretty good run. It's not bad. It's not bad. I feel pretty good about it. Master of None, Good Place, Succession, and Watchmen. Yeah. Those are like uh, some hits. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you do that? Um, how do you pull that off? Like that seems somewhere between difficult and impossible. Yeah. I think that, you know, successful people who are stupid don't account for how important luck is in the equation. And I always try to remember that luck is a huge part of the equation in my life. And so I'm not going to say like, well, it's just if you're hardworking and you're smart, you're going to do it too. Uh, for me, what happened was I went to Master of None. I really liked those guys. I listened to how much both of them praised Mike Schur, who they worked with on uh, Parks and Rec. It was just sort of such glowing, effusive praise of him that I decided if I ever got a chance to work with Mike Schur, I would I would leap at it. And so after Master of None was over... My manager works with Mike Schur's manager and heard that they had a, a couple openings on on season two of The Good Place. And so he got me a meeting with Mike Schur and Mike offered me the job. So I, I worked there for season two and shortly after I got the job at The Good Place, as luck would have it, Mike Schur invited me to a dinner party at his house and met Damon Lindelof. And The Leftovers had just had its series finale and I was obsessed with it. And so I sort of sidled up next to Damon and was telling him how much I loved The Leftovers and how much I thought the finale, I really did think the finale was great. Maybe I was exaggerating a little bit because I, <laughs> I wanted him to like me, but I really did. I To this day, I think it's one of the best uh, television finales I've ever seen. And so about a month later after that, he emailed me and said, I'm working on this new project called Watchmen. Would you come have dinner with me and, and talk about it? And so he invited me to come work on that. From that, I sort of developed a relationship with HBO, and HBO recommended me for succession. And so, you know, I think that I certainly made decisions and I worked very hard, and I feel like I proved myself to people I was working with and and, uh, I was working for, but I do think that like luck was involved in that. 
and taste though, right? Like there's some yeah. element of taste too. Yeah, I think again, yeah, I, yes. For me, I don't care if it's a comedy or drama. I don't care like I'm into genre stuff and grounded stuff. If it's high concept or low concept, I think that all I want to do is work on shows that are are smart and good and feel like they're like additive to the world. Additive to the world is, is an interesting thing. I, I, I'm like a big Good Place fan. I've watched The Good Place. Lovely. Thank you. And I find it to be like a, a pretty earnest show mm-hmm. and like pretty optimistic. Yeah. Which are also like uh, adjectives that I would use to describe your writing. Yeah. And it sort of like made sense in my head that you were writing <laughs> on that show. Did yeah. it feel that way to you? Like, again, I'm just want to try to figure out the bridge between the stuff you were doing before and that work. Like, yeah. did that f- feel like a link to you? Yes. I think that the thing about Mike Schur's shows, if you look at Parks and Rec, if you look at The Office, though that wasn't his show, but he had a huge hand in it. If you look at Brooklyn Nine-Nine, if you look at The Good Place, I think that what he – he's not a cynical person and that reflects in, in the work that he does. Um, I think that his shows are optimistic without being saccharine. I think that's the key is that they never feel cloying. They feel like they are optimistic and and happy, but without ever feeling like you're watching like a children's show. It does. It it always feels like it's for adults. And so, is that how you do that? Like uh, you make it for adults? How do you make something optimistic but not saccharine? I think that you acknowledge that people are flawed, and you acknowledge that the world can be a gross place at times, and that people can do bad things. But the sort of the core of like. The Good Place never pretends that people are wonderful and that everybody can be good. The Good Place says only that you shouldn't give up on anybody and that our only responsibility in the world is to just try to be better. Not that you should be better or that if you aren't better, then then people should abandon you. It's just that wake up and try every day. That's really all it says. It never feels cloying to me because of that. I think that Parks and Rec does the same thing. I think the the lesson at the heart of Parks and Rec is that it's always better to work together. In fact, I I think that because that's what I heard Mike Schur say about Parks and Rec is that that's what was his intention in that show is that it's always better to cooperate and work with other people than to work on your own. Yeah. And I think that those are good, righteous lessons, but they're also lessons that don't feel – like they're made for children. Like they, they are simple lessons, but also incredibly complex and difficult at the same time. And I, again, like that feels really connected to pieces of yours that I've read. Like, yeah, those ideas are in a lot of those essays. I think. Yeah, and that's so. I did feel I felt really at home there. Yeah, like did like, you feel like you were like scratching the same itch? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I felt so. I had only seen like seven or eight episodes of the first season when I had that interview with Mike and I didn't see the twist until my first day of the writer's room. And so they like sent me away from the room to go watch the finale. And I saw the twist that they were, I mean, spoiler alert, but it's been like five years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But you saw that they're in the bad place. And to me, I was like, Oh, this is like the special Mike sure touch to make sure that it doesn't get cloying. Right. Is that like, Oh, they've actually been in hell the entire time, and my and the guy that you thought was like this, like super peppy, optimistic angel, is actually a demon who's torturing them. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was like, oh, this is like is a great, brilliant turn, 
and B like opens up the world so much for season two in a way that I was really excited by. Like an Arizona trash bag. I'm from Arizona. <clears throat> and so like <laughs> this scumbaggy woman from Arizona doing her best to try to become a better person really, really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the character of Chidi really, really resonated with me in that I try to not give up on people and I do feel like very often that I am a very, very flawed person and I have done my best to try to be as good as possible, but I continue to fail. But I still wake up every day trying to be a little bit better and that um, when I think that that's why that show really resonates with people and, and I think that that's why that show feels important, especially right now when the world feels so grim and, and yeah. people are in such dark spots that a show that says, you know, regardless of how dark things are, regardless of how bleak life seems – regardless of how embarrassed or, or ashamed you are of, of, of the things that you've done or your life, that it's okay. Like the only thing that you have to do is get up tomorrow and try to be a little bit better. It feels right for the moment. Yeah. How do the, um, how do the stakes compare? Like thinking back to when you were doing journalism and then thinking about what you're just talking about, the good place, like, in terms of like the impact of the work you're doing, how do those two things compare? I mean, just by virtue of like the number of people who see television, you know, episodes of The Good Place get, you know, millions and millions of people watch those and millions more will watch it on Netflix. So I think just by virtue of a numbers game, I think that if that's how you measure impact, I think that that wins. But there are like blog posts that I wrote and blog posts that I've read that I'm sure like a fraction of the number of people who see a Good Place episode have read, but they still sit with me in a very, very real way. Yeah. More so than like an episode of television that may have been seen by 25 million people. There's just like little nooks and crannies of the internet that I went down and writers whose names I can't even remember, but but pieces that I read of theirs that like I still think about. Does it change it at all to have it go from like being your byline and your name at the top of the thing to your name among a bunch of other people's names at the end? Interesting. Um, yeah, but but it did at first, but that's something that went away. I think that it's the nature of the job is that, you know, if you want that collaborative nature where you're like, where I was saying, like I was praising the working in a room with a bunch of people and working yeah. with directors and actors. Um, if you want that, then you also take the the reality that like everybody's name goes on it, you know, and it's not going to be as like your front and center because that's your byline and you get to tweet it out and see everybody responding to like your byline. Like I said, when it, when it was like that, like TV helped me grow as a writer. I think that's one of the ways it helped me grow was mm -hmm. that like get beyond like this, egotistical desire to like be front and center and have like be the only one responsible for this thing. And, um, talking to the same 4,300 people. All the yeah, time. exactly. Exactly. Stop trying to impress the exact same 4,300 people your entire life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about succession quickly? Yeah, let's do it. I feel like, uh, the long form podcast audience probably pretty interested in succession. Okay. I have a total uh, neophyte question. Yes. As a person who doesn't yes. understand TV. Please. Uh, 
my understanding of that show and part of the thing that like uh, I was very intrigued by is that um, it feels to me like it's doing this like incredible sleight of hand where basically like somehow it is getting you to care about a group of people that have like no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Yeah. And I know there's like this origin story with Breaking Bad where the whole idea of that show is like, can you take someone who's like empirically good and over the course of a television series, like have them end up empirically bad, (laughs) you know, and uh, like play that trick on audiences. And that's kind of my experience of succession a little bit. I I, like Kendall might be a slight exception to this rule, but not completely. Not completely, but Kendall... Kendall is redeemed by the fact that he knows he's a piece of shit, right? <laughs> like that's that's like the he he's like he understands that at his core. Like I am like not worth saving. I should be dead. I'm scum. He thinks about suicide. Like not that those are good things, but just like the reason that like Kendall should be your favorite succession character is that he at least understands like how much his core has been eroded and like understands that he's like the things that he does are bad. Yeah. The rest of the family like does not understand that. They don't they don't understand like the fundamental reality that like the things that they are do are like bad things. But I'm still invested in them despite yeah. them being so completely unredeemable. Yeah, absolutely absolutely. Uh, no, that and that's like that I feels think that's like the very, mark of good writing. Yeah, that feels yeah. like a really challenging writing move. Yeah. But I think that the thing is is that like you should also like consider that like being invested in something and liking them are different things. So Wanting to see what happens to them is different from like I like them. Yeah, I just assumed. Do you that like ha- them? No, but it, yeah, but there. I would have assumed that I needed there to be some tension or question about them being like good somewhere or redeemable somewhere, and I've kind of like given up on that. Yeah, and yet I still really want to know what's going to happen. I think that the key is is that there's never like soliloquies where it's like, "What have I done? Like, what have I wrought?" But you do see like hints of humanity in all of them. You see Roman sexual vulnerability and how tortured he is about that. And you see Tom Wamsgan's humiliation at like his wife's philandering. And you see uh, you see his wife, you see Shiv uh, humiliated because she sort of like is this desperate power grab to please her father, but is like humiliated at every turn by him and sort of his like unwillingness to give a woman a position of power in his company. Um, so – you know, you see throughout the course of the season, these people's like flaws. And I think that's what draws you into them and like makes you actually care about them is like, it's subtle, but you do see them as like layered human beings as opposed to just like pure evil monsters. Show seems really fun to write. Yeah, it was, I mean, that show is fun to write for a number of reasons. I, I, to be clear, I was not there for the whole season. I was there for about five or six weeks in the summer of 2018. And it was about half Americans, half British people, all of whom were great, super funny, super talented, super smart. And it was just, yeah, it was very, very, very pleasant. I loved it. It was in London during the World Cup too. So we worked from about 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then we went to the pub to watch the soccer games. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was, that was like, it was about, it was like a month and a half of that. of just like working a little bit and then going to the pub to watch soccer. It was great. But the thing is, is that like, even though we only worked four hours a day, like the amount of work that was done in those four hours was incredible. Do these writers' rooms on these different shows have like totally different cultures to them? Um, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. But, you know, 
never any jerks. The the good thing that that I think has been the operating premise for a lot of the writers' rooms that I've worked in is that just like a no jerks policy. And so yeah. the chemistry of the room is very, very, very important. And like being willing to like talk to your colleagues and speak openly and and not be afraid of speaking your mind is like very important to getting the work done. And so the culture has been different from time to time. You know, the culture of the good place was so much different from the culture of succession. But at the same time, like I loved them both just for different reasons. And it's full of just very smart, talented writers. What was the culture of the uh, Watchmen writers room? Because I've heard Lindelof talk a little bit about it being this like kind of sacred space. Yeah. The Watchmen writers room was probably the most intense because the material we were dealing with such third rail issues. Um, you're dealing with racism and reparations and sexual violence and police violence and just all these incredibly serious subjects that, you know, it never felt like it was like a morgue or anything, but it was just, it did feel a lot more serious than the other rooms that I've been in just because everybody wanted to get it right. You don't want to go in there and be flippant with those kinds of subjects and feel like you're doing a disservice to the material that you're discussing. I read some stuff too, just about like, I don't know, the kind of emphasis in that room around there not being bad ideas. Does, yeah. that, does I, that jive? Yeah, but I think that that goes for every room that I've been in because you have no idea. Like we goofed off a lot in the Good Place Writers Room, for instance, but a lot of times that goofing off sort of like would spiral into like ideas for the show. A lot of the times it wouldn't. A lot of the times it was just purely goofing off for hours at a time and you're like wonder where the day went <laughs> and you're like watching YouTube videos of like crazy like jazz poets and you're like, how did we end up here? But, you know, keeping that buoyancy and keeping that that levity in a room is important. I think particularly in a comedy room. Yeah. Yeah. What is it like for you to see these things like in their finished form. So my potentially wrong assumption is you're sitting in the room, you're finishing these scripts, and then there is a whole nother world of production that's going to happen that you're not super involved in. Yeah. And then this thing comes back that's like these ideas and this, this writing come to life a, I guess, is that right? And then B, either way, like, what is it like to find it, see these like final products? Yeah. I, I'm now at a point in my career when I am more involved in the production process. So I'm involved in helping cast and I'm involved in um, being on set and costumes and, and sort of, there's a big conversation about this right now about, um, I think the hashtag is called like pay up Hollywood. And it's about sort of the way that assistants have been treated and abused throughout um, the Hollywood system for, for decades now. And one of the things that people, assistants talk about is that like a good showrunner, a good boss should be preparing you to like take over their job eventually. And I've been lucky enough to work for bosses who I think take that seriously and allow you to be on set and allow you to be in those production meetings and allow you to like talk to the directors and like really put your input in on the music and costumes and actors and direction in a way that feels like we are grooming you to, to like eventually be a director and a showrunner one day, you know, and to have more power in this industry. And so I am now at a point when I'm in more of those conversations. And so I do see some of it, but 
But even when you're on set, even when you're watching takes, even when you're watching dailies of the day, you don't really have a full understanding of it until you see a cut. I'm not, I sit and edit sometimes, but I don't really sit in edits every day yet. So I think that the biggest, most sort of moving moment that I've had in television is seeing how the episode that I wrote of Watchmen turned out. Just because there were so many moving parts, the director did stuff that I had never put into the script, that Damon and I hadn't put into the script. The decisions that he made to do like things in one shot and, and, and one take was all him. And like I hadn't heard some of the music cues and like one of the songs that we wanted for this particular scene dropped out um, that we couldn't clear it. And so Trent Atticus wrote a brand new song in the style of like a 1938 ballad, which was like incredible of them. And I hadn't heard that until I saw the final cut of it. And so I remember watching that episode when I finally got to see a cut of it and just being like really, really moved by and sort of like in awe of what I was talking about earlier, which is just like the collaborative nature of it and like what a team of people can come together to really do and accomplish. Because I think that sometimes, you know, allow me to be a little twee here, but you know, I consider myself an artist and I think that sometimes you try to make a piece of art and like it falls short of, of what you wanted and it falls short of your expectations. And I think that that becomes more likely when there's like so many cooks in the kitchen. Cause the great thing about teamwork is that like you guys can come together and do something really huge. But, um, a difficult thing about teamwork also is that like, if you aren't on the same page with somebody and like they have a different vision from what your vision is, then it can all fall apart. And like, you can end up making something that you never wanted to make in the first place. And so making a great TV show or, or movie, I think is like a little bit of alchemy where it's like all the stars align and everybody sort of works together for this and has this singular focus that, that is, I think very hard to achieve. And so, that's how I felt when I when I watched that episode. It felt like, oh, like the stars aligned on this one. And like really, that one really felt uh, powerful in that moment for me. Is having your own show, like running your own thing, is that what you want to be doing? Yeah. I want to direct. I want to produce my own stuff and I want to show run my own show. Yeah. I'm not opposed to working for other people in perpetuity. I, I really like working in writer's rooms and I and I feel like I learn a lot every time that I work with a new group of people. Just adding to the toolkit and sort of taking a bit from here and taking a bit from here and sort of like hopefully focusing some ideas for myself. And so I will do that forever as long as people will have me in their writer's rooms. But I do also want to make my own show. Yeah. Where does that idea fall on the like confidence freaked out Spectrum. Oh, so I like, mean, it's like, so, feel like, it's like do you a, feel like you can do it's that? Like an eleven, um, <laughs> eleven as far as freaked out. Yeah, I think that I can do that, but I think that I will have a lot of anxiety when I do it because then it goes back to your earlier question, which is that like your name is on it, like your name's at the top yeah. of it. It goes back to that like article world where it's like created by you know, and like the buck stops with you, and like every creative decision is like. You can surround yourself with like smart, talented people, but they don't do what they do unless you give them the go ahead. And so, yeah, the anxiety would be super high. But at the same time, I think that I don't know what else I'm working toward if not that. 
We still got to open that restaurant too. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm backing away from the restaurant these days <laughs> just because it's, uh, it's a terrible. I've, I've been hanging out. I, I hung out with like two or three people who are super into the uh, food and wine world. All of them were like, "Oh, restaurants are so stupid. Like, like nobody should do it. That you, the margins are so slim. Like, you don't make any money. Like, you really have to be obsessed with it." And I think that you know. What I've learned is that I just want to, I just want a place to go hang out. And I, there's like a ton of <laughs> like, like there's there's a ton of those in LA and New York and all yeah, the other places. I go. Yeah, like there's a ton of places to hang out. I think I can do that without needing to worry about like how much radishes we should buy this week. <laughs> like I don't actually want to do that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, I, I, there's one more question I got to ask, which yeah. is I feel like part of the reason that I wanted to have you on. Uh, was that I didn't understand like what had happened for the last four years uh-huh. of your life. Um, but part of it also is in those four years, like it's important and telling that when you made that switch, you felt like Gawker was going to be there and journalism as you understood it was going to be there, like something you could come back to. And I think that's changed. Yeah. You know, I think there's uh, it's a great deal less certainty which means that people are looking for other paths and escape hatches. And I mean, I'm talking to writers all the time who are thinking about making this switch that you made. And I'm sure there are some people listening right now who are thinking about it too. I get like an email a month. At yeah. Least. So what's your answer? Like what's your advice for people who are thinking about that? Um, I, I There's a lot. I would say that firstly, like you should probably move to L.A., if this is a job that you really want to make a go at, LA is like, there's like writer's rooms in New York also, but if you really want to sort of make a go at it and start, and you're starting out, you should probably move to Los Angeles. Once you move here, you should write a bunch of scripts. You should start writing scripts and don't stop writing scripts. Don't worry about like refining them too much, but you know, you want to make them readable. Um, I would say that at least one of the scripts you write should be about you. I think that the second ever script that I wrote was this comedy script called People of Color that was just about me. It was just about a writer living in Los Angeles and his friends. I look back at it now and it's I think it's unreadable and I hate it. But when I wrote it, I was like, oh, I hope that this gets made. But what I should have understood is that it became a calling card for me because people realized that it was about me and they weren't interested in making it, but they were interested in meeting me and having – the person who wrote this like in their writer's room because they were like, oh, I this is very much autobiographical. I can see where you're, what perspective you have. I see what's important to you and like the ideas that interest you. And so it was less about like, we want to make this show and more about, I want to have this voice in the writer's room. And so I think that particularly women and people of color and LGBT people, I think that so many times those people have been socialized to believe that like their stories aren't what people want to see. And that like people, nobody cares about like my life, like my life isn't interesting. And it's like, meanwhile, there's like how many TV shows over the years about like, like just like a kind of like not great looking white dude, like coming home and like his beautiful wife is there and he's like, work has been so hard. And she's like, oh, you leave your dirty underwear all over the house. Like that, like we've seen that iteration of that TV show so many times and I can guarantee you that the people who write those shows are never like, I don't know if this story deserves to be on the air because it's like, it's hacking and it's been done before. 
so going into it and thinking that like believing that you have stories worth telling and that your story is worth sharing and that people are going to be interested in it is important. And so make at least one of the scripts about yourself, put your voice on the page um, and really sort of show people who you are and what you'd bring to the room. And then start sending it out and meeting people and sending it to managers and agents and trying to meet other writers and to get your foot in the door. I think that like I said before, I think that luck is a huge factor and this is an industry that a lot of people are, want to get into and the jobs aren't – the good news is that there are more television shows on the air than ever before and it seems like there's more all the time. I think, I think the last time I checked, there was something like 700 scripted television shows. Yeah, it's boom times. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, that, the good news is that there are more jobs than, than ever. Do you think that you can pursue that on the margins – of being say a working journalist or is it like it's going to be luck but also if it's going to work you need to be all in no i don't think that i don't think you need to be all in but i think that it helps i think that because you know if you are for instance like when i was going around town taking those meetings i didn't have a job and so like if so if my agent called me and said like can you meet with somebody today at 3 p.m I could because I didn't have to like call out of work or like – or I wasn't on deadline or anything. It was just like, okay, You could yeah. be there at 3 p.m. sweating, <laughs> yeah. sitting on a be couch. There sweating. So I wasn't good in those meetings but I could be there. And being there is like half the battle when it comes to that kind of thing. And so – and and in, like I said, in, luck again, this is something that I often think about is that that Chris Hayes thing that I did got me my first TV job is that I was so close to not doing that. I was so close to turning down that TV hit because I was a little hungover and I felt like I needed a haircut and I was also like a little nervous about it because I I didn't I had didn't have a script or anything so they called me at like noon and then they were like do you want to do this and I was like oh I I might not be able to like let me get back to you and for like 90 minutes I stressed about it and was like maybe I don't really feel like doing this I think I might just say no and then for whatever reason at the last minute I was like you know just do it if it bombs, it bombs, whatever, like just try. And then that is, that was the catalyst for my entire television career was, was my manager seeing that. And then Mike O'Malley seeing that. It's wild that really just like going on Chris Hayes and doing that thing led to all of this stuff. It really is. I think about it a lot. Like I think about it, how many feel like movies of like it's like the butterfly flaps its wings and like right, everything right. changes is that that's I do think about that that I had I had I just been like feeling a little bit sicker or like been tired that day or or just felt a little bit too nervous I was I was so close to saying no. but that's also in like one of my favorite pieces of yours it's this uh I think it was an all essay which one it's about trying Oh. It's like a case for trying. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. Like don't, don't stop running. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an argument for like do the thing. Yeah, Just exactly. Try. Doing the thing that scares you. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yes. And that's what that's what I did that day. It was like doing the thing that scares you that feels a little – like makes you feel a little woozy. I think the thing that – the thing in that piece you're talking about is that I'm a fearful person. I'm afraid of a lot of things. I'm afraid of – I'm afraid of how people – perceive me. I'm afraid of hurting myself. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of a lot. Bravery does not come naturally to me. But the moments when I feel like I've 
done the best in my life and been the proudest of stuff is when I've overcome that fear to do something that, that scares me. And I think that when you're first starting out in, I think in any career, but you know, it feels when you're first starting out in life, when you're first starting out in writing, when you're first starting out as trying to be an artist, I think that betting on yourself is deeply important because nobody else is going to bet on you. I took that job because I bet on myself because I bet that like I can do this and if I do this well enough, I could probably parlay this into another job. And so I think that you have to be an optimist in order to do that. And if you're not an optimist and you're a pessimist, I think that you have to overcome that pessimism. I think that I am very much a pessimist a lot of the time. I think that I, like I said, I'm fearful. I think that I have imposter syndrome. I think that I go into things thinking, anticipating failure. I go into things anticipating sort of the worst thing that could, that can happen, will happen probably. But I am able to overcome that in order to try and do something new. And that's been probably one of the most important instincts I have in my life is to do that. Hey, thanks for sitting in this hotel room. Anytime. I love it. <laughs> We're not going to do it again. This okay. is it. <laughs> Thank you, man. I'm happy to. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks to Court Jefferson for coming on the show, not once, but twice. Really a third time, if you think about it. Uh, we'll be back next week. <laughs>